We are in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Every true believer is in a lifelong struggle to defeat sin. Rather than being gentle and kind with others, we are often harsh and critical. Rather than having peace and contentment, we are often full of envy and bitterness. We struggle to gain consistent self-control over our inner thoughts and desires. We are slow to forgive and quick to condemn. And so we experience frustration and disappointment over our failure to be more like Christ. Now this frustration can be a healthy sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Right? Trying to reform you. Trying to help you be more and more like Christ. But as Clark said this morning, sometimes our frustration can be the result of our own pride. Last week we saw that a desire for a deeper experience of God like wanting to be closer to God and experience Him, that that desire can lead us away from Christ. This week, we will see that our desire for victory over sin can also turn us away from Christ. We can be led to think Clark, I really appreciated that intro, the uh, call to worship about Luther. We can think that our various human activities that we do are more important to our conquering our sin than what Christ has already done. Martin Luther wrote that our striving would be losing if the right man were not on our side. <clears throat> so it is right and good to hunger and thirst for holiness, but you don't want that to move you away from Christ. Now how does Paul encourage this? In this, this very short passage we're going to look at today, the sermon is not going to be short, nor is it going to be a simple sermon, so don't get excited. Um, how does Paul encourage this? How does he try to keep you fixed on Christ? To not deviate from Christ in your struggle to be more holy. How does he do that? Well, in a nutshell, don't go home after this, but in a nutshell, he says, remember that you have been baptized into Christ. You see, baptism into Christ Jesus declares to you every day that God has already severed you from your sinful nature. Your baptism into Christ declares to you every day that you have already been severed 
from your sinful nature. I think baptism functions like a standard in an army. You know, a flag, a banner, holding up. If I've never been in the army. Many of you have. You could correct me. But you belong to a unit. And when you belong to that unit, you, in your basic training, you learn about that unit. You learn the history of the unit. You learn about the, the, the uh, deeds of that unit in the past. You, you learn about... Uh, who you are as a unit, your purpose, your identity belongs to this unit. And I don't know how long that would take to learn all those things. I would imagine in some situations it might be rather long. But the standard is a symbol of all that it means to belong to that unit. So during the battle, and I, I don't know how this works in present day, but in the Civil War, which I'm much more familiar with, um, you would, you would go into battle with the flag being held high, and the unit would be following that, that standard. And the swirling around of the chaos of the battle, and the individual soldiers in, could look to the standard, look to that, that flag, and they could find courage and strength. And if the flag were going to fall, the nearest soldier would pick that flag right up and keep it up ahead. Lift it high. In truth, that flag was nothing but a piece of cloth. But to the disoriented soldier, looking for courage, looking for strength, looking to know where he ought to be, how to continue in the battle, the standard was far more than just a piece of cloth. Now, of course, the soldier could, in the midst of battle, take a moment, pause, and say, well, now, what were all those things they taught me in basic training about my unit? He could do that, but very unlikely, right? How much easier to look at the banner and almost everything that was drilled into him in basic comes to his mind right then. I belong to this unit. This is my banner. In preaching, every week, you are continually learning the details of what it means to be under the standard of Jesus Christ. You are learning the doctrines. You are learning the truths. You are figuring out all these little uh, details. But in baptism, it's like you are holding the standard up and you're seeing the fullness of all those at once. Without faithful preaching, baptism has little to offer. You understand that? Like, you know, if you don't preach well, you don't get the truths, the banner doesn't mean much. But along with the faithful preaching of God's word, baptism pulls that teaching into a grand symbol, evoking within you greater hope and inspiring renewed faith. That's the point. As you wage war against the spiritual forces of evil, as you strive to conquer your own sinful heart, God wants you to remember the standard of baptism. He wants you to use your baptism as a way of keeping your eyes fixed on Christ. And I'm going to show you that, hopefully, from the passage today. So if you would, follow along with me in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I think that's nice on the Reformation kind of Sunday. Nailing the 95 Theses. Well, your sins have been nailed to the cross He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Skip down real quick and just look at verse 23. Because this this whole section is really one section. In verse 23 it sort of finishes. He says... Next week, we'll look at all these different ways in which people had left Christ. We're not really dealing with that today. But all of these other ways are told to us in verse 23. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And Clark, your beginning was so important. Luther, thinking that as he climbed up those stairs on his knees, praying at every step, thinking that that would somehow make him holy rubbish. They have no value in stopping the flesh. So my statement to you is that human religion, however it's conceived, human striving does not have the power to stop you from sinning. You, You cannot use your flesh to conquer your flesh. Think about that. You cannot use your flesh to conquer your flesh. I mean, one way that is, if you, if you think you can, what does it result in? Pride. Where's your pride come from? Your flesh. So if you could conquer your sin by your flesh, it would lead to pride, and you would be more sinful at the end than you were at the beginning. If you want to know what is of value in defeating your sin, you must keep looking to Christ and your union with Christ. It is only in Christ that your flesh has been severed from you. Let's look closely at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This idea of in Christ you were circumcised is the driving thought of this whole passage. In Christ you were severed from the body of flesh that which drives you to sin. Now how does Paul know this? How does Paul know that being in Christ you have been severed from your your flesh? Well, because the old covenant sign of circumcision taught God's people to expect the Messiah to sever God's people from their sin. You know, they, Paul learns about circumcision in the Old Testament. The, the fleshly sign of circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh, of the foreskin. Right? It was a cutting away 
So the circumcision actually is a sign that you go, oh, it's a cutting away of, of something a part of me. It's a cutting away of that. But in the book of Deuteronomy, we see how the physical sign of cutting away of flesh actually signified the cutting away of the sinful heart. So you can turn with me there if you want. You don't have to. But these are, these are two verses in Deuteronomy that you're going to want to have written down and remember. Deuteronomy 10.16 Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So in this verse, Moses and God are telling the people who were physically circumcised, you have a duty to circumcise your heart. In other words, quit being stubborn. Walk with God in humility and brokenness and love of God. In this way, I believe that Deuteronomy 10.16 is actually... God using the covenant sign of circumcision, not to say that you've already been circumcised of heart. It's a way of calling them to repent so that they would be circumcised of heart. It's a perpetual call to repent of your sin. But praise God that his covenant does not just call you to repent. Deuteronomy verse 30, verse 6. And I might read this twice because it is such a powerful verse. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring. What will be the result of the Lord circumcising your heart? So that you will love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and you will live. Paul understands that the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, left to themselves... God's people would never circumcise their heart. It was impossible to circumcise your heart left to yourself. The command to repent would always be ignored. And so God promises to do the work of severing himself. God would sever our sinful hearts from us so that we might live. Repentance does not begin with you. Repentance begins with something that God does. God in his covenant love and in, the, in Jesus Christ circumcises our hearts. Now, the way I describe this is that your understanding of a covenant sign is like a cup. And whatever you put into the cup is what, the, what it means to you, right? Paul is telling the, the Colossians, I want you to remember that your baptism into the cup, into the meaning of that baptism, is that God has severed you from your sin. That's the meaning that he's putting into the cup. 
Paul understands baptism by understanding circumcision. He says, I, I, you want to understand baptism? Look at circumcision, and it'll help you understand what your baptism means. So let's look at verse 11 again. And I hope this, this is going to be a little bit hard. You have a lot of preconceived ideas of what verse 11 means. And I think it's going to adjust them a little bit. It's going to have you put your thinking cap on a little bit. I'll read it again. In Jesus Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we need in this verse to understand who does the circumcising. We need to know when and how he does the circumcising. Now Paul tells us that it was made without hands. So that should help us pretty easily to know that it's not anything human, right? It's not the hands of a pastor that pours water on you, uh, that severs you from your sin. But neither was it an act of your will. Remember, you're being baptized, you're repenting of your sin. That's not what severed you from your sin. It is a severing performed by God himself. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 makes the promise. God will do it, and in Christ it has been done. Now, how does it happen? Paul gives two statements. By putting off the body of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ. Now, literally, by putting off the body of the flesh means stripping off the flesh. And literally, by the circumcision of Christ is in the circumcision of Christ. And here's the question. Do these two phrases refer to an act of God performed directly upon you as believers, or are they describing an act performed on Christ? And this is not an easy question to answer. And I'm going to show you how it's not an easy question to answer because your translations are all over the place on this. The NIV says, In him you were also circumcised in putting off of the sinful nature, that's speaking you, your sinful nature, doesn't mean Christ, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but by the circumcision done by Christ. You see that phrase, done by Christ. So how were you circumcised? Well, Christ reached down and circumcised you. Okay. King James Version has a similar approach. It says, by the circumcision of Christ, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. And it, it's obviously then our sins. But the Christian Standard Bible is, takes a different approach. Listen to this. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off of the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Now, I know this is going to be hard for you. I hope I don't confuse you. You can always ask questions tonight about some of this stuff. Understand that the Holy Spirit does do a work in your heart. You must be born again, right? The Holy Spirit awakens you. It does a work in your heart. I, I agree with that. Um, 
Romans 2.29 says that circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. The Spirit does this work. I, I get that. But I'm convinced in this passage that Paul is focused on not an action that's done in your heart, but an action that was done to Christ. God performed this circumcision upon Christ in his death on the cross. You see, why do I think this? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, the passage begins, in him you were circumcised. Not by him you were circumcised, but in him you were circumcised. Something that was happened in him, the circumcision takes place. Secondly, probably even more convincing, the phrase body of flesh or the body of the flesh is not a phrase that Paul ever uses to describe your sinful heart. But it is a phrase that Paul uses and just used in chapter 1 to describe the human flesh of Christ. Turn back in your Bibles to Colossians 1.21. shouldn't have to turn. It's probably look on the other side of the page. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You weren't just given an opportunity to be saved by his death. You were reconciled in the death of Christ. Colossians 1.21 and Colossians 2.11 are parallel thoughts. Just as God reconciled us in his death on the cross in his physical body, so God has severed us from his sin, our sin in Jesus' death on the cross. When you read then the next phrase, in the circumcision of Christ, I think it is best to understand this was a circumcision that was done to Christ. Namely, his death on the cross. You see, whatever the Holy Spirit does in your heart, or has done in your heart, is the fruit of what he did to Christ on the cross. And I understand this is a fine distinction. And I would not force you to think through all this. I know it's intellectually difficult because it was intellectually difficult for me to think through it. But it is so important to your faith. Your personally being severed from sin is not the source of your salvation. Whatever the Holy Spirit has done in your heart is imperfect. You have not been completely severed from your sin yet. Otherwise, you wouldn't be struggling with it. But the imperfect work that is occurring in your heart, if you don't want to start trusting in what's in you to be the source of your salvation, you have to believe that that imperfect work has a source in a perfect work because you need to put all of your faith in the perfect work of Christ. While Jesus walked this earth, he experienced temptation all through his life. In his physical body, he experienced temptation 
He was tempted in every way as we are. And yet, as incredible as it may sound, he never gave in to sin. He went his entire life without sinning. But when Jesus breathed his his last breath, the body of flesh was stripped off of him. And you know what's true now? He will never, ever, ever again experience temptation from sin to sin. The body that lay silent in the grave and on the third day was raised is immortal. No temptation will reach him. His victory over sin is complete. And before any personal severing of sin occurs in your heart, you've been completely severed from sin in Christ. I put this practically. When you think that your sin is unconquerable, Whatever sin you're dealing with, your pride, your anger, your lust, whatever it is, your envy, your greed, your disappointment, whatever. When you think it's too much for you, you're basically saying, Jesus did not sever me from my my sin. When you were circumcised, when Christ was circumcised on the cross, you were circumcised. The Shorter Catechism makes a distinction between justification and sanctification. See, we talk about justification. It is a completed act. You never improve on it. Christ has done it all. And therefore, you are completely forgiven, declared righteous in God's sight. And then we talk about sanctification. And we say sanctification is this ongoing work. And it is in your life. In your experience, sanctification is an ongoing work. But what I think Paul is saying here is that you have been declared sanctified at the very beginning. It's as if you've already been living perfect in Christ. Complete victory. You haven't kind of been circumcised. You know, like it's a botched job. I thought I was circumcised back here, but why am I still struggling with so much sin? As if God didn't cut it completely off. See, what Paul is saying is if you're in your daily struggle, in your daily wrestling, and even despairing whether you can overcome your sin, you need to remember that you've already been severed in Christ. Verse 12. You were circumcised in Him, verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Notice in this passage the repetition of with him, in him, through him. Everything is in Christ. It's not about what's happening to you apart from Christ. It's what you is true of you as you are in Christ. Picture yourself strapped to Jesus Christ. Pick better yet. Picture yourself as the flesh of Jesus Christ. And then you're up on the cross with Christ. You're up there with him. And it's, his flesh is stripped off of him as it goes down into the grave. And he is now free from all temptation to sin. You were his flesh. Stripped off of you. 
Not everybody has a right to believe this. Not everybody in the world can say this. But everyone who has believed in Christ and everyone who has then received the outward sign of baptism has a right to remember this every day of their lives. Verse 12 says very clearly, you are in Christ by baptism, in baptism, and through faith. It does both of those. Some people say, is he talking about water baptism? Is he talking about spirit baptism? Regeneration, conversion. The argument against water baptism is usually if the circumcision was a spiritual circumcision, therefore then the baptism must be a spiritual baptism done without hands. Therefore, the having been buried must refer to the work of the Spirit killing our old nature. And I am not convinced of this. You have been buried and raised in union with Christ. It's a spiritual reality, but it's not clear that Paul is referring to the spiritual reality when he says in baptism. He could be referring to Christ's death as a baptism. You were circumcised in his baptism, his, and he refers throughout the Gospels, his approaching death is a baptism. Could be that. But it could also be the covenant sign of baptism. You see, in the New Testament, they don't review, uh, equate faith and baptism as separate events. It's like one and the same. And I'm not really certain exactly what's being referred to here. I have my level of certainty is not as high as on other things. But I believe that in your physical baptism, in your having water placed upon you, you were united to Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. This makes perfect sense with the following statement that it is through faith. They're, they're one and the same. Not like one is this way. Peter says, uh, repent, or faith, be bapt- and be baptized. Every one of you. It wasn't like believe and then think about getting baptized later. They were one event. Faith lays hold of what baptism declares. And your baptism into Christ declares your perfect and complete severing from sin. You see, physical baptism is not merely an outward sign of that initial work that has already occurred in the past. It is a sign of the perfect work of Christ. I've said this before. It is a, baptism is a sign of the beginning of your salvation to the end of your salvation all at once like a standard just held up for you. Look at Colossians 3. If then, and really the if there is since then, or because, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, 
for you to think right now that you've already died to sin does sound stupid. It sounds silly. I deal with my sin every day. How can I think I'm dead to it? You're not dead to it because you've had this powerful work in the past and all of your sins been, you're dead to it there. You're dead to it because you were united to Christ and he is dead to sin and he is living to God. You have to remember that. All right, now very quickly here. Verse 13 of chapter 2. And so you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. He doesn't say there, God made alive by the Holy Spirit, which he could have. God made alive together with him. Your being made alive is because you're in union with Christ and Christ is already up in heaven. Having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I think the uncircumcision of your flesh refers to your previous unbelief, the life before faith and before baptism. And Paul states, God has made you alive. Even when you are in despair, thinking that your sins are overwhelming you, he's saying, but you're alive. Look to the standard up there. This is who you are. Paul then explains in verse 14 that this is very similar to your trespasses being forgiven. We We speak like this when we talk about justification all the time. Right? All of your sins have been declared righteous in Christ and forgiven. So Paul's saying, think of your sanctification in the same way. And then in verse 15, he says, If it's not enough to know that all your sins are forgiven, that you've been severed from your sin and you're, you're raised together with Christ, guess what else happened when Christ died and rose again? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, here's a great one. This is moving outside of you. Sometimes we think, I'm in trouble. I can't overcome my sin because Satan and spiritual forces are stronger than I am. And Paul says, oh, don't worry about that because you're in Christ. And when Christ died and rose again, guess what he did? He stripped those powerful forces of any strength. He disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them. The picture is like when a king conquers and you have behind you a train of, of people that you've defeated and they're naked and they're, they're like chained together and the victor is just carrying them behind in his chain. And that's what's going on. You think your flesh is too strong to defeat your sin? It's already been severed in Christ. You think the spiritual forces of evil are too strong? Oh, God made a public spectacle of them in Christ. So here it is. I know you. Many of you are weighed down by your sin. You despair whether you can conquer your anger. You despair whether you could conquer your pride. You despair because you constantly are being envious of other people. You despair because you're still struggling with lust. You despair because you're discontent. You despair because you're greedy and you want something for yourself and you could care less about the other people around you. You despair because you are being too harsh 
with someone you love. You despair because of your selfishness. You put it in. You can go whatever it is. You're all struggling with something, and you wonder if you can overcome that sin. Does putting off your sin seem impossible? Your baptism declares to you that you have already been severed from it. Perfectly. Do you despair whether you will be able to put on the good life, the true life? In other words, do you despair whether you will ever live compassionately and kindly and with humility and meekness and patience, freely bearing with the faults of others and forgiving others? Do you ever despair whether that's actually going to occur? Does it seem impossible? And not just you personally, but the whole church, such that we're all living in harmony with one another. you ever despair that the church is ever going to look beautiful? It's already been occurred with Christ on the cross. Already done. Do you fear the powers of this world? No problem. Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Tuesday night, we are going to remember the Reformation. And so it's only appropriate that I end this sermon with two quotes, one from Martin Luther and one from John Calvin, referring to baptism. If you know anything about Martin Luther, you know he was a man of terrible internal struggle. I mean, he would often go around thinking that he was fighting with Satan, beating in the air. He despaired over his own flesh, he despaired over Satan. And he started saying, he would start going around to counter this, and he'd start saying, I am baptized. I am baptized. And that would be his statement. Now, do not think for a moment that Luther is saying this like it is a talisman, like it is a good luck charm. In his treatise on baptism, he writes these words and listen to them closely. For this reason, we must hold boldlessly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized. And through my baptism, God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in a covenant with me, not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and to blot it out. Oh, my. And if that's not enough, okay, let's get away from Luther. Let's go to John Calvin. Calvin writes this in his Institutes of Christian Religion. We must realize that at whatever time we were baptized, I love that, Matter if you're a Peta Baptist or a, you know, uh, Credo Baptist, whatever time you're baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it, that we may be always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, I think our church and the the church at large is in hard times. And I'm not sure that our faith will make it unless we have a, a standard such as this with baptism that will hold us to saying that I will only have victory through faith in Christ 
only in him. There is no victory apart from Christ. May you be strengthened in your battles, knowing that you have already been severed from all your sin in Jesus Christ. Amen.